Chapter 4, Part 7 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 7 Study in Europe, 1849 to 1851. October 24th. A most pleasant occurrence. Professor Lee, my Geneva professor of Materia Medica, is in town and is coming to see me tomorrow. He has been making a tour of two months in Great Britain, and now he visits Paris. How glad I shall be to see him as a friend whom I respect and with whom I can have a long, delightful gossip. Perhaps also he can give me information and some advice and introductions. October 25th. By these most absurd regulations, I was not allowed to show Dr. Lee over the hospital when he called. However, the directeur escorted him, and M. Blot offered an introduction to record. Although the residence in La Maternité was an extremely trying one, from the utter absence of privacy, the poor air and food, and really hard work when sleep was lost on the average every fifth night, yet the medical experience was invaluable at that period of pioneer effort. It enabled me later to enter upon practice with a confidence in one important branch of medicine that no other period of study afforded. And I have always been glad that I entered the institution, notwithstanding the very grave accident which now befell me. This event was noted at the time as follows. Sunday, November 4th. Served all day in the infirmary and witnessed M. de U.'s first application of the seraphine. I felt all the afternoon a little grain of sand, as it were, in one eye. I was afraid to think what it might be, for in the dark early morning, whilst syringing the eye of one of my tiny patients for purulent ophthalmia, some of the water had spurted into my own eye. It was much swollen at night, and in the morning the lids were closely adherent from superation. November 5th. I applied for permission to leave until the eye was well and was refused. I went to the infirmary of the Ilava and informed M. Blot that I was prisoner. He examined the eye carefully discovered that it was the dreaded disease, consulted his chief, and then told me that as everything depended on the early active treatment, he should give up the first days entirely to me. He expressed much sympathy, arranged everything for me in the most thoughtful way, and I went to bed. I little knew for how long. I dispatched a note to my sister, and then active treatment commenced, the eyelids cauterized, leeches to the temple, cold compresses, ointment of belladonna, 
opium to the forehead, purgatives, foot baths, and sinapisms with broth for diet. The eye was syringed every hour, and I realized the danger of the disease from the weapons employed against it. Poor Anna came down in the evening to sympathize with the inflamed eye I had written about, and was dreadfully shocked. She has told me since how many times she hid behind the curtain to cry. My friendly young doctor came every two hours, day and night, to tend the eye, Mademoiselle Mallet acting in the alternate hours. The infirmary was kept profoundly quiet, and a guard appointed day and night. The sympathy was universal and deep, the Ileva asking after me with tears. An unheard-of permission was granted to Anna to visit me three times a day. For three days this continued. Then the disease had done its worst, and I learned from the tone of my friends that my eye was despaired of. Ah, how dreadful it was to find the daylight gradually fading as my kind doctor bent over me and removed with an exquisite delicacy of touch the films that had formed over the pupil. I could see him for a moment clearly, but the sight soon vanished, and the eye was left in darkness. For three weeks I lay in bed with both eyes closed, then the right eye began to open gradually, and I could get up and do little things for myself. How kind everybody was! I shall never forget it. Anna, with her faith in magnetism, came down regularly three times a day in rain and snow to sympathize and impart the vital fluid. My friendship deepened for my young physician— and I planned a little present for his office. Madame Charrier entered into it with spirit. We had long discussions together, and finally secured an elegant pair of lamps for his consultation rooms, which I hurried through the corridors to see, bundled up in my dressing gown and shawl, looking and feeling very much like a ghost. The lamps were conveyed to his room that night. The next morning he came to me evidently full of delight and longing to be amiable, yet too conscientious to infringe the rules of the maternity by acknowledging the present. He admired my braid of long hair, wondered how fingers without eyes could arrange anything so beautifully regular spoke of the protestant religion thought if he joined any church it would be that turned to go turned back again and was evidently hardly able to leave without thanking me mademoiselle mallet told me that the night before he had run in to madame Charrier to tell her of his present and on his way out passed by the cloisters in an evident perplexity longing to enter the infirmary of the Ileva, but unable to do so. I do admire his delicate conscientiousness. I received a visit from M. Devane, who had sent me a message of sympathy. 
I could not clearly make him out with my dim eye, but had a general idea of a short, elderly man standing hat in hand and regarding me as one would a solemn religious spectacle. M. Boyvin made some very friendly remarks to me and concluded, raising his hand, Et vous y avez, c'est d'une patience. Angelique, replied M. Devane. Saturday, 22nd. Oh, how happy I am at this moment, for Dubois has just left me, understanding for the first time the justice of my determination to obtain a full medical education and obliged to confess that I was right in principle. I shall have my congé and a hope of clinique and study in the eccentric hospitals. Heaven has answered that heart-cry of the other night. Wednesday, the 26th. Off, actually. I dressed for the first time. Bandaged and veiled, the carriage drove to the door. Anna guided me in. I made kind adieus, caught glimpses of stone walls in the cold, dull light, and thus ended my maternity life. I felt very weak and laughed hysterically the whole evening. The following letter, written at this time to an uncle, an officer in the British Army, shows the important support which the mind can render the body in combating disease. Dear Uncle, I thank you with all my heart for the kind sympathy you have expressed for me so warmly. Fate certainly gave me a strange and sudden blow, but now I am up again, strong and hopeful, and eager for work, and I beg Uncle to feel quite sure that a brave soldier's niece will never disgrace the colors she fights under, but will be proud of the wounds gained in a great cause, and resolve more strongly than ever to conquer or die." In truth, dear friends, the accident might have been so much worse that I am more disposed to rejoice than to complain. Even in its present state, the eye is not a very striking disfigurement, and it will gradually become still less so. As to the more serious consideration, loss of vision, I still hope to recover that in time, and meanwhile the right eye grows daily stronger. I can write without difficulty, read a little, and hope soon to resume my usual employments. I certainly esteem myself very fortunate, and I still mean to be at no very distant day the first lady surgeon in the world." I find from your letters that there is a possibility of your visiting Paris. I should rejoice in the prospect of meeting you, if my own stay were certain. But it is by no means so. I have already accomplished much in France, but I find it very difficult to proceed further. Still, I cannot yet judge decidedly of my prospects." I have just received permission from government to visit the hospitals, which is encouraging. 
and one opening may lead to others, so that I may still hope to meet you some day, unless you should grow frightened at the idea of my scalpel and lancet, and feel uncertain how far the ties of relationship may modify the experimental researches of the medical student. Believe me, very truly, your niece, Elizabeth Blackwell. But the six months which followed my departure from the maternity proved to be a time of great mental suffering, under which a strong physical constitution threatened to give way. For the condition of the affected organ entirely prevented that close application to professional study which was needed. Both anatomical and surgical work were out of the question and even reading had to be laid aside. I followed a few lectures and some clinique at the Hotel Du, by permission of M. Rue, and engaged a repetiteur, but this was quite inadequate to accomplish the end in view. In June of 1850, a visit to the fine mountain air of Preisnitz, famous establishment at Grafenberg was resolved on in the hope of regaining strength and power of study. Traveling rapidly through France, Germany, and Prussia, in five days I reached the famous water cure region. On the journey a day had been spent in Berlin, where I had been struck by the arrogance of the Prussian officers and the fear which was expressed by a friend with whom I talked freely in Kroll's garden lest conversation should be overheard. Friwalde, at the foot of the Grafenberg, was full of quagesta, but being warned by a lady to whom I brought an introduction that it would be impossible for a lady to go alone to the Grafenberg Hotel, for it was full of gentlemen who went about in their shirt-sleeves, I was rather perplexed as to where to go. A home letter describes this curious experience. Grafenberg, 3 p.m. On a shady seat, on the brow of a hill, commanding a most beautiful prospect, Dearly beloved people, this cometh to you from a very watery person in a very watery place. The sound of water is heard everywhere, but I must give you some particulars. Not being able to find lodgings in Frivalda, I left word for Preisnitz to call, and was sitting in my little upper room at the hotel, feeling decidedly blue, when the door opened and in walked a middle-sized elderly man with sunburnt face marked with the smallpox, with gray hair, light blue eyes, a pleasant expression of face, and dressed in country best style. I liked his appearance. Twas honest and good. He examined me very closely with his little blue eyes all the time I was explaining my wishes. Then, in his abrupt manner, he told me he could make me quite strong in about six weeks, and the cure would do no harm to my eye. 
when I told him that I was informed Grothenburg was quite full, he said, You can come, child. Come this afternoon and bring your things with you. And off he went. I felt quite relieved to be spared the bother of lodging, hunting, and housekeeping. I determined to face the innumerable gentlemen in shirt-sleeves and let properness go. If the Grafin did not like my position, why, she might dislike it. When I reached the place of my destination, I was a little confounded. At the very top of the house, with bare rafters for the roof and the wall, a row of little windows a foot high let into the roof above my head, a wooden crib full of straw, three wooden chairs, a table, and low bureau with a green earthenware bowl. This was my room and its furniture. I must have looked rather dismayed, for the girl hastened to inform me that I had an Italian count and countess for my next-door neighbors, and that there were eight ladies and eight gentlemen on the same floor, and that we should be out in the woods all day. Of course I could say nothing when I found I had such noble neighbors, or rather when I found that it was really the last vacant room in the house. When the bell rang for tea, I was shown into an immense hall that might seat five hundred people, gaily painted and ornamented with chandeliers. I sat down and found myself, to my utter amazement, beside a row of ladies in grand toilette gossamer dresses with short sleeves and waists a little lower than I thought waists were ever worn, hair dressed out with curls and flowers, bracelets, I counted five on the arm next me, and rings to match. The long tables were covered with alternate bowls of sour and sweet milk, and brown bread and butter. The bread looked inviting, but when with difficulty I had sawn off a morsel, it was so sour that I could hardly swallow it. But the milk was good, and I did it justice. People kept coming in in groups, very merry, but all talking German. The gentlemen, I presume, were in shirt-sleeves, but as they were all covered with coats, I was not shocked. The next morning early I went through a series of hydropathic operations, at which Preisnitz insisted, as he always does the first time. The course never varied, viz. packing, a half-bath, a plunge-bath, a wet bandage, and some glasses of cold water at six o'clock in the morning. An eyebribong, sits bath, and another wet bandage at twelve o'clock. Ditto at four p.m., and water ad libitum all through the day. The diet is plain, but every morning an old woman opens a white bread shop outside the dining room, to which almost every one is customer. Each one comes in from the early morning walk, buys a roll, and marches in with it under his arm. 
and morning and evening the little strawberry gatherers offer the alpine strawberries with their fine wild wood flavor for sale. Everyone seems to have a good appetite. My own is ravenous. A half day in the open air, rambling over these fine mountainsides, stimulated by the wind and the abundant really living water, I find myself suddenly in strong, vigorous health, and the idea of sickness seems a fable. At first I felt very lonely in such a large assembly, but now I speak to a good many, and I have found one young American, Mr. Glynn, who seems like a brother in this concourse of strangers. He is about twenty-two, nearly blind from amorosis, but one of the smartest fellows I have ever met. Quick as a flash, full of Yankee shrewdness, he bears his terrible misfortune with real heroism and has rendered me numberless little services. There are several mountainsides laid out with walks innumerable. The favorite early morning walk is to the Preisnitz Spring. You wind round and up the mountain, partly through open, sweet-smelling fields, partly through pleasant fir woods, passing several springs by the way, each with its name and inscription and rustic seats around. At each you stop and drink, chat a little with those you meet, and perhaps sit down for a few moments. It is very sweet at this hour. The leaves smell so fresh, the beautiful flowers are covered with dew, and the cuckoo is heard in the woods all day. This stroll generally occupies two hours. It is very amusing to watch the people. Grafenberg is the rage in Germany. All classes are represented here. The Countess von Vestalp offers to introduce me to a fashionable English circle in Friwalde, headed by Lady Darley, and to our great indignation, the butcher Haynau, notorious for his barbarities, made his appearance here one day. In the house we have gymnasium, billiard room, library, theater, and balls frequently take place. Preisnitz has five hundred patients under its care, and with their friends they amount to hundreds more. You see him sitting at the head of one of the large tables three times a day, looking very pleasant. He is quiet and simple in manner, but has a very determined mouth. They say he is proud of having been an Austrian serf. His pleasant-looking daughter is married to a Hungarian baron. These foreign titles are really a farce. I am here in my loft one day, in slippers and old dressing-gown, when a knock comes to my door. When I open it, a tall, black-whiskered foreigner appears, who presents the respects of Madame la Princesse Obelenska and hopes I will call upon her when I next go to Frivalda. The man made quite sure that I was I, as well he might, 
for I never had quite such queer surroundings. I paid my visit, a professional one after all. I had to put up with four gulden instead of the honor, but she was a simple, pleasant lady, and we parted on the pleasantest terms. This was, in fact, my first regular professional consultation. The air and water, however, of that lovely region, with the constant outdoor life and endless rambles over the Bohemian mountainsides, proved too stimulating to the still-sensitive organ. A violent attack of inflammation supervened. With great difficulty I returned to Paris and placed myself under the care of the famous oculist Desmar. This gentleman rendered me the most skillful and generous aid. In the course of a few weeks he restored me to active work again, although the sight of one eye was permanently lost, and the intention of making surgery a specialty necessarily abandoned. During this trying period of Parisian study, my cousin, Mr. Kenyon Blackwell, a South Staffordshire ironmaster, was endeavoring to promote my strong desire to study in one of our London hospitals. He applied to the able and highly esteemed dean of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, who presented the application to the treasurer. The subject was referred to the medical council of the hospital. The result was forwarded to me as follows. At a house committee, held on Tuesday, the 14th day of May, 1850, a letter addressed to the treasurer from Mr. Paget, communicating to him the request of Miss Elizabeth Blackwell, a lady well-connected in this country and the United States, to attend as a student in the wards and other departments of the hospital was read, when the treasurer reported that the same had been referred to the medical council, and the opinion of all the members of the council having been read, and Mr. Paget having attended and furnished the committee with such information as was required, it was resolved that in the opinion of this committee, Miss Blackwell should be admitted as a student under such regulations as the treasurer and almoners may from time to time deem necessary. James Paget, Esquire. The ticket of admission, forwarded at the same time, granted permission to study in any ward, and follow the visit of any physician or surgeon who was willing to extend to me the facilities of his department. The permission was accompanied by a cordial welcome from the dean, Mr. James Paget, M.R.C.S. This was indeed joyful news. I could now, in an open and honorable way, no longer regarded with suspicion, but protected by the highest medical sanction, devote myself to the unlimited field of practical medicine so cordially thrown open to me, and which I ardently desired to study. I hastened to London, and after some little difficulty in obtaining lodgings, 
on account of being a lady alone, established myself in rooms in Tavy's Inn, then a delightfully quiet set of houses entered by an archway from busy Holborn. Every morning after breakfast, I now regularly betook myself to the hospital, spending many hours there daily and making the faith wards under Dr. Burroughs my headquarters, but Messrs. Lawrence, Stanley, and Lloyd courteously welcomed me to their wards. Indeed, every department was cordially open to me, except the Department for Female Diseases. Kind old Dr. Hugh was always ready to show me cases of interest, and he took me by an underground passage, which led to Christ's Hospital, to taste the famous pea soup made for the lads of that old foundation school. I particularly valued the special visits of clinical observation without students, which Dr. Bailey and Mr. Kirks were making. Mr. Kirks was preparing a new edition of his excellent Students' Physiology, and Dr. Bailey was pursuing his valuable investigations on dysentery. In relation to the latter, it is noted in my journal, he is so gentle, so friendly, and so learned in his art that he teaches me more than anyone else. I also attended Mr. Paget's admirable lectures on pathological anatomy, given in the amphitheater. My seat there was always courteously reserved for me. I experienced also the utmost consideration from the students, a large class of whom always followed Dr. Burroughs' visits. Indeed, so natural did this innovation of a lady student soon become, that when the following year I paid my farewell visit to the treasurer, he remarked to my great gratification, why, we had quite forgotten you were here. End of chapter 4, part 7